Welcome to 100 PM, the show where we interview 100 active product managers from startup to enterprise and everything in between, all from one great city every season. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com. That's the number 100, productmanagers.com. It's the web's fastest growing resource for product management topics. We've got tons of great articles about business, technology, and design, fabulous contributors, and the official must-read, listen-to, follow list, as recommended by our incredible guests, week over week. It's season one. We're here in Los Angeles. I'm your host, Susanna Bate, resident instructor at General Assembly and founder of The Development Factory. Welcome, and thanks for listening. We spend a lot of time on this show talking about strategies for managing product. But what if your product is content? How do you bring great content to life? How do you produce stories that are a natural extension of your company objective? That's the topic of today's show, and our guest and guide is Liz Armstrong, a seasoned journalist and story producer who's worked with brands like Lululemon, Vice, Nike, and Hulu. Be prepared to laugh and learn. Liz Armstrong. (laughs) Hi. Esquire. This is the way I want to keep calling you Esquire, but you shake your head. I do shake. I don't know where What's that comes from. the proper way to introduce you? What is the proper way? Just Miss Liz Armstrong. Just Liz Armstrong. I've always been one of those people who is like a first and last name person. You know, no one has ever just introduced me as Liz. It's always, here's Liz Armstrong. Like the Z blends right into the A. That's the opposite of share, basically. I go by two names. Oh, right. <laughs> All right. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. First of all, thank you for being here with us. As you know, at 100 p.m., we're talking to product managers and you're not a product manager. So this is anomalous. But the reason that I did invite you to be here and speak with us is because we're seeing increasingly this emergence or reemergence of content, you know, content strategy as being a really big part of customer acquisition loyalty, brand building, and really almost to the point where the content for many companies is becoming part of the product ecosystem. So I guess, you know, what I want to talk about is content as product. And while you're not a product manager, you are a content expert. Correct. So maybe tell us a little bit first and foremost about your background. How did you come to be a content expert? (laughs) Well, I'm going to take it back to 16 years old. I won tickets to go see a band. It was my favorite band at the time. And they were backstage tickets, like all access backstage tickets. Anyway, I was there um, and the band came out and uh, I got to sit with the guitarist and I just lied on the spot and I said, oh, I have a zine, which I didn't. I was like in a journalism class in high school and I said, can I interview you? And he said, sure. So I pulled out a pad of paper and I just started asking all these crazy questions like, did you mow the lawn as a kid? What's your favorite color? Like I had no clue what I was doing. But I scored a huge interview with like a major rock star at the time when I was a teenager. And uh, like the, the newspaper that served the whole suburban area saw that and I got a job. I got a job as a columnist. Really? Yeah. Wait, where did you publish this interview? In my high school newspaper. (laughs) Your friends were jealous, I'm sure. I I don't know if I even had any friends. I was really obnoxious. But, um... (laughs) But, yeah, so I got a a weekly column as the, quote, um, teen music reviewer um, for a year while I was still in high school. And uh, from there, like I did all kinds of nerdy journalism things. I went to journalism camp. I I was the editor-in-chief of the school newspaper. I started writing for all these zines. Um, I got kind of taken under the wings of a lot of um, music critics at the time, big kind of big name music critics at the time. And that's really where I learned how to write. I went to college for one year, Uh, went to a 
journalism school, and I dropped out because I just didn't I didn't want to learn that way. Um, I I had an internship after my freshman year of high school in New York for the Village Voice, and I was so I was so ill-equipped to be doing that. Uh, I really ruined the whole program for everybody. I <laughs> why did they kill it after you? Um, they changed all of the rules after me. Um, I would go in. I kind of stole the. I was the music editor's assistant, and I just stole all of his invitations because I opened all of his mail. So I stole all of his invitations to parties. I RSVP'd as Liz Armstrong from the Village Voice. I was 19 years old. I didn't wait in any lines. I showed my Village Voice ID instead of my driver's license. I got in everywhere. I caused a lot of trouble. I pissed off a lot of people, and I ruined it for everyone. Sorry. But from there, I um, I quickly got a job as, as a at a newspaper in Chicago, where I stayed for seven years. That was the Chicago Reader. And I worked my way up from typesetting. I was a typesetter and uh, ended up as a, after a few years as a staff writer with my own column. And I just got tired of being there in Chicago. Um, I knew after you know spending a year, or I mean three years, running around and covering everybody, knowing everybody's business, you just get kind of tired of it. So I left. I went to somewhere where I didn't know anybody. That was my goal. So I went to Las Vegas where I knew there'd be lots of stories, and there were, and I was a staff writer at a newspaper there. And that was um, really crazy and dangerous for a young woman by herself. But I did get a lot of good stories. And so I left Vegas. I went to New York because I figured, okay, it's rite of passage for every person who wants to work in media in any kind of meaningful way. So yeah, I ended up in New York. Um, I, after a little bit of a struggle there, I ended up as the online editor for Vice. And that was right at the time when Vice, you know, it was a magazine and then they had VBS. That's what the TV, all of the television was called at the time. And it was, you know, the only place you could go online for reliable, you know, 24 hours a day, as they called it, 24 hours a day video content. Whoa, that was mind-blowing then. And so it was right when Vice and VBS were merging digitally and the magazine was turning more into a little bit more into a news site, moving away from the jokes and the skater and the drug and the music and the culture. They've moved away from that? I mean... I'm kidding. (laughs) You know, it used to be a lot more focused on all that. And so I inherited kind of a blank site and had to really learn on my feet. It was my first digital job. I mean, I did not even... I barely knew how to use the internet. I don't know how how the hell I got that job, but I did. And um, I'm so grateful for it because I, I had to just like learn. I had to really fast. I did not know what a CMS was. I did not know, oh my God, how to use a blog, like nothing. And um, I learned all of it doing it. And I think that was really good because it gave me a sense of how to intuitively connect stories and ex- digital experience. Um, So it was really invaluable. And from there, I left and took a job at ReadyMade, RIP. I was there. What was my title? I was a digital director. Oh, yeah. I was a digital director there. You're giving so much hope to people who want jobs (laughs) with no experience. And they're going, is there a way? You're like, yeah, you just walk in, (laughs) you get it, and then you figure it out once you're there. Well, I mean, I've actually always... I've never had a job that already existed. I have always made my jobs wherever I go because of the life experience that I have, and maybe we'll get to that later, how important that is to have real life experience if you want to be a storyteller or content maker in any kind of way. Well, and let's, you know, you bring up the term content maker. So it it sounds like the background was skewed journalism, right? Definitely. Notwithstanding the fact that you sort of dropped out of traditional journalism and said, fuck that, you were you were getting stories. You were getting stories in Chicago. You were getting stories in Vegas. When you arrived at Vice, that's when there was this sort of transition into less kind of journalism on the streets and more how do we create content that's meaningful for our readers. Correct. And it was, I mean, there was still the writing and there was still journalism and and... Um, I was one of the few people, I mean, maybe 
I don't want to say the only, but definitely one of very few who had any kind of formal journalism background. Even though I don't have a formal education in journalism, um, being at the newspapers for eight years, eight, nine years, I definitely got beat into me, I mean whipped into me by my editors, what proper journalism and reportage consisted of, no matter what you were writing about or whatever, what story you were telling, there were still ethics and methodologies that had to be in place. How much of that is part of the landscape now? Because I think for so many of us, we're being assaulted all the time with content, right? And this is part of why we're having this conversation. Every brand has content. Content is everywhere. So many different platforms. How much of it is journalism as sort of traditionally defined? You're laughing. I am laughing. Like the answer is zero. I'm scoffing. I am not just laughing. So how much of it, how much journalism is truly alive and well versus how much of it is just content creation? So. And what's the difference? There is so much content creation going on which is very profile which is very, I will take you at your word for what your reality is and you'll explain it to me and I'm going to publish it as truth. Or, you know, when I say publish, I mean disseminate in any format. So, uh, so there's a lot of that. And I think that that is completely valid. That is one way of storytelling as long as it's presented as such, very profile The only thing with stuff like that is that it's, it, it's not lasting and it's pretty throwaway. And I think that's a big issue that brands especially are understanding with the content and the money that they're pouring into creating content these days, which is that they want it to last. Um, They don't want it to just be something you click on and it's cute or it's cool or it's funny for a second and then no one remembers it and no one remembers your brand. So that's how do you make it last? And the way that I think you make it last is by um, doing the research, putting in the, the footwork, Um, figuring out what hasn't already been told about a subject, feeling out the entire landscape. Like every single project I have, I literally go to the library. I read, I pull all of the books off the shelf on the subject. And then I also look at, you know, what Ricky is saying about it. I look at what Psychology Today says about it. I go through JSTOR. I go through, I go through, yeah, I already said Psychology Today, but I go through Um, medical journals, everything I can find, and scientific journals to find whatever you can about the subject. And I think when you do that, then then you start to inch closer to creating something that will be more holistic, meaningful, and last. So let's, let's talk about this a little bit. You're seeing, we're seeing more and more, and some executions are done well and some are poor, and I think we'll talk about that hopefully a little later. You're seeing more and more things like a film and then Vans is funding it, mm-hmm. right? Which is different from a film and Vans is paying on the back end to have the actors wearing the shoes. Very different. So this is kind of part of this new paradigm. It's, it's We're moving away from kind of product placement. Of course, it still mm-hmm. exists, but we're moving into this what seems like strategic alignment of here's a lifestyle, here are influencers or or key ideas within a market. We're a product, there's alignment. How do we bring these pieces together? So how do you bring those pieces together as a brand? In 50 words or less. Right, right. Well, it's different for different brands. I think in an ideal world, a brand lets the story speak for itself and they choose only stories that they think are in alignment naturally with the ethos of their company. What ends up happening more often is the brand wants to interfere with the story and make it fit their ethos. And when that happens, some of the magic gets a little lost. And it can still look great. It can still be interesting. I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't think that's what, I think people can sense when something has integrity. So let's talk just a bit about the workflow, the the chicken and the egg of this, right? You know, in journalism, you got all of these sort of writers that they belong to a magazine, they belong to a paper, and they're kind of coming to the editor and saying, I got a line on something. I think this could be interesting. Sort of whatever the vertical, whatever the area of focus. For a brand who might not be thinking journalistically, how do stories connect with them? Is it 
people like you who have stories that are saying, you know, what would make this really interesting is tying it to X company. Or do they is do they sort of go out in search of a story and then if it's that, how do they find it? I mean, how do you get connected to content with integrity, to interesting stories? So, okay, I think this is going to make some stomachs churn, but here you go. So <laughs> what ends up happening is the marketing department will surface some sort of trend or uh, ideal or product or you know, whatever, they'll surface something or a combination of things that they know that they want to create something around. And if they have their own internal team, great, they have their team go chase it. If they work with a a content studio, then they feed that information to a content studio or a production production studio. Just to be clear, let's put some specific around this. So I'm just sitting around and I'm thinking right now, Chris, now I can think of something. Right now, the 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 hottest thing is blah, and I'm like, we need blah. We need to find a way to tell a story about blah. Be connected to blah. Yes, and also here's our ideals. Here's here's what we're our tonality. Now go. Right. They it's just- I've got ingredient A. I've got ingredient B. I think there might be a way to put them together. I don't know how. You figure it out. Exactly. And are you the people that brands hire to figure that out? Yes. That's what story producing is. Well, that's what story development is for sure. Um, And I do that as well. And, you know, story producing, story development, story direction, they're all, they mean different things depending on which part of filmmaking or content making you're involved in. So I use them a little bit interchangeably when I'm doing uh, branded content work but for sure when they're just trying to surface up like who are we even talking about what are these stories we're even trying to tell they'll just yeah they'll give me the sort of like x and y axis and i give them the matrix you just hand out the matrix to whoever i do hey you have so many superpowers (laughs) let's go back for a step because we talk about you know content is hot and of course for people who have worked in content for a long time like yourself you're thinking no it's it's always been there but there are these changes. And you had said something to me before about really one of the differences being, I think, in some of the earlier days of content development, the idea was let's create all of our own content and our own platform. Let's have all of our content live within our website, within our ecosystem, and then everyone will think it's amazing. Right. And that I think audiences have rejected that precisely for that sort of perceived inauthenticity. And I think, you know, brands have also discovered it takes a very different kind of strategy to create a a content publishing business, right? It's different from having a newspaper. You have to find a way to get people there. You have to find a way to constantly keep them engaged. So with that new insight in tote, less micro sites, less trying to own the platform and the content and more just trying to be seated on other content sites in a meaningful way. Right, integration. Uh, so just talk about that process, how that's different, how that looks. Well, I think that is that is a huge challenge uh, for brands that want to make content, brands or products that want to make content today because there is so much competition for eyeballs and attention. And you already know that there's an immediate ask when you are trying to get someone to buy into your product your thing that's an immediate ask and then you're also asking them to then spend their time with your story so I think the way that I've seen brands be successful is when they give instead of just constantly asking and taking they're also offering something bigger than just themselves or their product but yeah, the, the whole, the integration and, and distribution is a really, it's what's plagued everybody who's made content in any format. I mean, that's why Amazon has gotten so huge because they are an enormous distribution platform. And that's something that I started thinking about as a storyteller, period, is, okay, how will the stories that I want to tell get 
to the most amount of people? What is what is really going to work as distribution? As we've seen, like media start to shut down and magazines as we used to know them shut down and websites change and the way we consume information has changed. Like what's the way to really get in there? And I started I started thinking of product as distribution model because it ends up in people's homes and in their hands and on their bodies immediately. So yeah, I started taking a more, um, I mean, I used to be extremely stringent about my journalistic ethics and not, you know, quote, selling out and not blending advertising with journalism because that is, that is really dangerous. But I think once I started realizing I could keep my ethics no matter what, and then just focus my work through different channels, it became a lot more interesting. And I definitely did not like change any games for anybody. I'm not going to say anything like that. But I think it's refreshing when I do connect with the brands that I connect with. They're like, oh, that's exciting. This is an entirely different way to think about what we can do with our product and what we can do with our storytelling. So let's talk about when this kind of approach makes sense, right? Where in the life cycle of a product business, in your opinion, you know, should I be thinking about content? Is this, a, is this an opportunity that really is great for, you know, you've worked with a lot of big labels, right? Is this an opportunity that makes a lot of sense when you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions of dollars to produce really high quality one-off, you know, short miniseries, or... Is there an opportunity to do it right from from the ground up as part of an extension of your your company culture and what you're trying to communicate with your product offering? I think that's a good question. So I think no matter what, when you are starting up, you need to know your story. You need to know what you stand for and where you're coming from. And everything that you put out needs to reflect that. You know, every single post through whatever social media you're using and that's probably, you know, the, the baseline for the minimum that you're going to be doing when you're first starting out is the free distribution channels. And of course, those will become more sophisticated as you grow. But to start there and start with your story there, absolutely 100%. And uh, I think, you know, if I were to dream big, is that part of the question? Dream big. So dreaming big, you know, I've seen a couple of brands do this. I was hired uh, recently to do this as well. So um, secret. Everybody take... can just Google Liz Armstrong and probably piece this together. But go on, Liz. It was, tell us. It was a, it's a major athletics brand. I work with a lot of um, major women's athletics brands. But um, to to create feature films or at least longer longer pieces, you know, 20, 30 minutes or more that are documentary in nature and are not pushing product, barely highlight it, if at all. And like I said earlier, that let the stories speak for themselves. You can have your X, Y, you know, I need this and this, and then let the story be what it is. I think about how incredible it was that Werner Herzog was hired to do Connected World by an internet security company. And nowhere did you see that company's name but you had this incredible documentarian and filmmaker create this film and it was gangbusters at the festivals and I think that's an incredible new model for funding important and interesting films is to have a brand just put their money in but stay out of kind of try to stay out of the process as much as possible it doesn't need to be about your product directly because the company ethos will be found in the universe of the story that you're choosing to attach yourself to. And I really think that's more of the future of what we're looking at because the consumers are and the audiences are becoming incredibly and increasingly more savvy and don't want any more, you know, visual or commercial pollution in their lives. So the more you can kind of back out and and give a story and make it great, the more they're going to love your brand and you get you have better loyalty. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I guess that does raise the question. So the hypothesis in what you're saying is if you as a brand align yourself with interesting, empowering, you know, insert adjective here type of stories, 
and you let the stories be their thing that just by virtue of aligning with them, what you're sort of tacitly communicating to the world is this story, this sentiment is our story and it's our sentiment. Exactly. You're, that was very brilliantly. All right. Interview over. Yeah. Okay. And, and on Great. The high, high five. High five. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the question though is how much of it is, is it the brand that needs to kind of lead this discovery? I mean, if I'm sitting here and I'm listening in and I'm thinking, this is an opportunity, you know, light bulbs are going off. How do I, as a product company, start to think about this kind of approach? I guess that's the first question. You know? How do I start to think about this approach? And is this a long game strategy? Because this, you know, the reason a lot of brands just like to pay for ads is because I want people to see that it's me and, and there's this belief that the short term, you know, the conversion will pay off. Sometimes it's hard to sell. Just give us all of this money. We're going to make this story. Trust us. People yeah. are going to become loyal to you because of it. Yeah. And it's a very rare company that does actually sign off on all of you know that entire budget. Like I said, I've been asked to create those things. We'll see yet if they get made. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you have to play a short game and a long game. You know, you play your short game through your advertising and your social media and you play your long game through your storytelling. Yeah, and that's and as I keep saying, that's where you you make the the things that are more meaningful and that connect, that kind of dig into the gut or the brain or the heart or all three, and you make your mark. People don't forget that stuff. What does it really take to build a content team? So let's say I'm I'm bought in. I'm like Liz Armstrong. This what you're talking about. This is exciting, and and I do want to be part of. Because what it, I'm going to digress here for just a moment. I think what it reminds me of is one of the reasons that marketing departments love hiring advertising agencies is it, it sort of surfaces these nostalgic high school feelings of like, I just want to hang out with the cool kids. Right? <laughs> advertising people are the cool kids? Well, there may be a world of... <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I love you all. Please the, the hire point me. Is, well, no, no, I just mean if you look at... The advertising industry, it's its historically, I know it's changing and it's headed toward more change, but it, it was always like, you could go and work at the brand and it's corporate and it's stuffy, or you could go and work at the agency and we have like Nerf guns and like <laughs> right. yellow walls and like cool <laughs> things going on. I guess that's now what tech companies have just become. But I think part of, uh, certainly I've seen it in my career, a lot of the times agencies got selected because the brand just wanted to feel cooler by proxy. Hmm. And um, this feels a little bit reminiscent of that, but maybe in a, in a more altruistic way, which is to say, I really want to fund the arts, or I really want to fund a certain type of storytelling, or I really just want to sort of stand next to people that I think are doing amazing things. And so that that is also an opportunity as a product company to say, look, even if the thing that you're doing isn't directly that, this is a way that you can participate in that kind of giving back authentically by partnering with interesting storytellers and interesting story subjects. So it takes a lot of bandwidth to have a content team full-time on-site. And if they're not full-time on-site, then there's no guarantee that they're going to be available to do what you need to do when you need to do them. So it's kind of a catch-22, I think, for a, a brand that is heavily invested in content. And I've seen some brands that are, I mean, huge international brands that have many different content firms or, or production companies that they work with um, and have, you know, one doing social media, one doing some doing their commercials, some doing their print, some doing film, you know, the they just farm it out to different teams. And then I have seen a company, another large um, North American company that does have an on-site full-time content team. And it's hard because they have to wear a lot of hats. Like you don't get the person who just gets to dive in and go to the library. You know, those people are expected to go to, to work every day and they are expected to be producers and storytellers and you know so they're handling budget and they're handling creative at the same time and it's it's kind of tends to get everybody muddled so I think that in order to get a pure piece of content like that's when you're going bigger 
you do want to go outside. And even, you know, even the company that I'm mentioning, the North American company that's large, and their films are great. Their work is is really great um, for the product, and then they also do stuff that's more meaningful. Um, but they still, you know, hire me to work on bigger, like bigger thinking, bigger projects. How important is it, though, in that model where you've got you know, and I get this, you know, the, one of the things about the development factory for us as an outside technology firm is the value that we can create for clients is we have multiple developers across a number of different technologies and skill sets. So if it's WordPress, yeah, we can do that. If it's Drupal, yeah, we can do that. If it's, you know, Node.js and it's not an out of the box platform, yeah, we can do that. And that's always been part of the benefit is if you hire one or two or three developers in house, they're going to become proficient in, in a very limited stream and and that's it. So it seems like that's kind of the parallel, but the contrast is if you're kind of hiring out all of these different firms, at what point does it matter? Does it matter at all to be consistent with the storytelling? Because it seems to me like what can happen is, well, there's a Liz Armstrong over here that thinks this is a great story. And there's a Liz Armstrong over here. And now you're just, your brand voice is all over the place. Correct. And so that is the benefit of having a, a in-house content team because they understand your brand and they're, yeah, they know, they, they stay in those, within those guidelines. But, you know, again, it's just, you could see the pros and cons of either of either side because you'll get something really fresh. You have the opportunity to get something really fresh when you go outside. And when you stay inside, sometimes, you know, the people that no matter how creative they might be, they might do some self-defeating before an idea even gets off the ground or gets presented because they're like, oh, I already know that doesn't fit within our prescribed realm of what we accept and what we're trying to put forth for ourselves. So I'm not even going to bring it up. Whereas someone like me, I I don't even get, oftentimes I don't even get the briefs. I don't even get the, the like marketing info and it's, it comes later, which can get a little. So they just want you to intuit who they are and what's right for them. Yeah. They'll give me like a little bit, you know, maybe they'll give me one report or, or something, but they don't give me the whole lowdown on all the specs of who the, who and what the brand is. What? is the difference between something well done and something not. I mean, you've talked a lot already about the opportunity to be part of a project that's interesting, the opportunity to kind of create brand equity or foster loyalty through intelligent, passive storytelling, right? Or passive sponsoring of storytelling. What is the, the opposite of that? What's when, when is it poor? What does that look like to you? Do you mean like what does the end result look like or what is the process? Yeah, just like the difference between some... I mean, maybe you can just illustrate with the example. You know, are there any examples that you can share with us, whether projects you've worked on or just projects you've seen, that you have thought that was a good partnership, that made a lot of sense, that was meaningful. I mean, you described the Herzog project Mm -hmm. versus one where you thought, oh, they missed the mark on this big time. Well, I think, you know, there's there's like one big question I ask as I'm watching something or reading something, and that is, do I care? Do I even give a shit about this? And that's the way you know if you've succeeded or failed. Is your audience, does your audience care? If they do, great. You did a great job. If they don't, you've, then it was a mess. And I think that the way that you make people care is by taking risks. And I know like risk taking is such a freaking, such a buzzy concept, you know, disruption and risk taking. But I mean really actually like gut-wrenching risk taking and doing things that feel very counterintuitive, um, but that your person who you've hired is like, no, seriously, like this is going, this is the hook. This is, this is it. And you just go for it. And, um, I mean, it's, it's hardcore. I think, I think it's hardcore to do that, but when you don't and people are just left looking being like, okay, I saw that, or I don't even get through it because it's just some other fucking dumbass with a paint palette, you know, and a beard talking about (laughs) whatever, being an artist. Like, I don't care. Who cares? I'm going to put you on the spot here because one of the things we talk a lot about in in lean methodology is is about risk. And specifically what we talk about is validated learning, which is 
you you don't just drive forward to the end result, spend all the money, and then hope it works <laughs> right. out. So no, but this why this is interesting is, is there a way... So it's not about not trying things, right? Validated learning isn't about not trying things. It's just about mitigating risk by only by testing out the riskiest parts of the model. And so I guess I'm curious, is there a world where you could be risky? Because I know what you mean. It's like the so many great ideas just die on the cutting room floor because too many people are like, oh, we can't say that. We can't do that. And just it gets watered down into nothing. So you end up with this kind of risk averse landscape. But is there a way that you can go after great content and also approach it in micro bits as a way of testing the waters or do you have to just go all in i mean i mean i think you start to know like you you, the way you test it is through your social media and you know what your audience responds to and what the nuance of the humor is and if there's humor it sounds like what you're saying is and this goes back to the starting with the baseline you're tweeting and you're Mm -hmm. offering a joke maybe you're you know dropping in a meme you're playing with micro formats that express tone that express kind of culturally relevant ideas whatever whatever you think your audience might take to Mm -hmm. and then if they take to that that could become the kernel of hey you know our audience seems really really interested in hip-hop right that's the that's the tonality so you already know what your point of view is and what your story is as a brand but you know, it's, it, it starts to get granular, like how you how you approach that and what kind of tone you take about it. Like, are you more reverent towards yourself and towards others or do you not take it seriously? I mean, that's the stuff that you, how earnest are you versus how maybe a little flippant or less, you know, more carefree are you? So that's the stuff. Yeah, you, you start to test it. And then once you have a good idea, just, just go for it. Let's talk about format because... So when 100 p.m. started, you know, when it was just a seedling of an idea, I thought it would be great to talk to a bunch of people, transcribe the interviews and make them available in text. Because for me personally, I only want to ingest content written form. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I realized, oh, maybe it would be good to share the audio. And then it was, no, it's it should be a podcast. And then if you want to offer the transcript, you can, which, by the way, Listeners, we do offer the transcript on the website. Wow, what a treat. I know, it is full full long form. But the the reversal that happened was recognizing that the majority of audiences are moving away from wanting written word. And so packaging Mm -hmm. this as a podcast was a way of speaking to that. Is written word dead? Is video everything? You know, is audio already a thing of the past? What do you think are the formats right now that are the most compelling? Well, I don't think the written word is dead. I think now more than ever, we need to be putting out writing that is important and that actually says something and that is well-informed. Like, we desperately need that as a public. And, yeah, I mean, that's supposed to be the media's job. Not doing so great at that. But, yeah, I mean, obviously video. People like to watch <laughs> do it do Simon. Do it slowly. <laughs> they like to watch. I don't know. I mean I think we'll always be tactile, we'll always be visual, we'll always be audio, audio aural, we'll always be olfactory, like all of it. You know, it's just it's not gonna go away. It's just a matter of like how you shift and where you put it. People are people read I don't even know this, but people people read shit on Pinterest. You know, it's just a matter of like where you shift the attention. And I think that is the biggest, that's another really, really crucial thing is understanding how your audience is communicating. And that was something that media really missed when the internet was becoming the internet. Everyone was like, no one's going to read on the internet. And so they were like very slow to put their newspapers and media were very slow to put their work online and they were very slow to organize it in a way that made any sense and they also didn't charge for it for right from the beginning so they gave the they they automatically made everybody assume that everything's supposed to be free everything that you consume informationally is supposed to be free so there were these crucial mistakes when really it was just that 
the way that people communicate has and always change has and always will be changing and so you've got to stay on top of what people are doing and how they're doing it and you're going to stay success- successful with the storytelling and the content that you make all right i haven't forgotten you said at the beginning you said life experience matters <laughs> i think this is relevant right so yes. we talk about here on the show get the job learn the job love the job right and so the you know the question is first and foremost what advice can you offer to somebody somebody listening in who wants to come up in the world of story whether you know through a, a specific kind of story producing storytelling mm-hmm. creative path as you have and as you live or just somebody who is on the marketing side of a business but wants to really really play in this space of building out content as product what, what advice can you give to somebody who wants to get going first you have to live your life for real <laughs> no you're, you're jamming it in you're doing it okay tell no us. i'm not jamming nothing no <laughs> um no for real though you have to you have to live your life you have got to have a life you have got to have experience and um and a point of view that's your own otherwise it it just I can't tell you, I mean, I, I worked in the writer's room on a new TV series that um, comes out December 7th, and everybody had these incredible stories, and that is what gets fed into, that experience gets fed into the creation of characters, the creation of the narration, the creation of um, the conflict and the resolutions, and you, you don't get anything special unless you've lived. So on top of that, you also have to be a very good observer and recorder. So you've got to be able to like translate the experience into a packaged, like a bookended um, digestible piece. So whether you practice telling it to your friends or I really suggest keeping a journal and just writing, just writing for writing's sake. Um, It really helps you organize your thoughts and it helps you understand um, how to elevate and eliminate uh, details. Are there, your, your past has been very interesting, to say the least. And I have the benefit of having heard some of the stories off the record. But what's been the hardest thing for you in this coming up in this space, learning in this space, this world of storytelling? Any kind of hard lessons where you really realized, oh, this is difficult or this this is going to be a challenge? Well, yeah, there's been a lot of difficulties. Um, one was realizing that it's not a perfect arc where you just, your success just keeps rising. Like there's times when it's, nothing's going on and you can't lose your feelings of relevance as a result of these dips or drops um I think also the big challenge is you know as I said like live your life live big blah whatever like it's some Katy Perry song but um you have to also know that it's not just about you and your creative genius um because that makes you a very difficult person to work with and I've learned that the hard way um from being difficult from being difficult yeah for sure um I have yeah, like not done in the past, you know, some jobs I just haven't had, I haven't had the best relationships and, and you've got to have great relationships um, in order to continue to keep getting work, especially like this. People need to want to want to work with you. So I've learned, yeah, I've learned the hard way. Like when you have, when you go follow your passions and go live a big crazy life, it's kind of hard not to be, have a, have an edge that's sharp sometimes but you've got to figure out how to be accessible, how to make all of that accessible. This is a little bit off book, but uh, now I'll jam something. <laughs> what about specifically as being female? Oh, um, I mean, yeah, I've worked in some really macho environments and very male-dominated environments. And it makes, in those situations, I have had to adopt, um, yeah, more like swag and and I was seen as difficult when I really wasn't. I was trying to have like integrity, you know, and yeah, seen as difficult for wanting to have my journalistic integrity and for wanting to 
be in an environment where I wasn't being insulted all the time. And that was just part of the bro culture is to quote, take a joke. But I think, so here's the interesting thing is that I have made part of my platform, I've made feminism part of my platform and my femaleness part of my personal platform. And so people hire me specifically for that. And if they don't want it, they, then I'm, I'm not available. You know, like right off the bat when they start talking about stuff, I, and I, I'll just, you know, kind of shape the conversation in such a way that I'll know right away whether or not I'm a good fit. And I have no problem saying no, and I don't take it personally if, if they decide to go with somebody else. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I've, I've, my own experience of this has just been that the clearer you get about what is or isn't inside of your personal roadmap, the easier it is just to say mismatch, no thanks, move on. Right. I mean, early in my career with projects, with opportunities, being entrepreneurial, wanting to touch everything, the instinct is maybe I can do that. Maybe I can do that. And, you know, sometimes you dive in more readily or you're compromising but having that really kind of clear center it's like oh this this doesn't map right it's and not a good fit totally and i and it was such a revelation to be like oh i have my platform is feminism and integrity wow easy and also it's quite unique right in los angeles yeah you know yeah to just be so clear about that in a town where everyone is hungry for anything. So it's given me a sense of confidence and yeah, that center that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, hopefully uh, feminism and integrity will be something that more and more people are lined up to to get behind. Hey, there's already a line. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> what, what's your favorite thing? I mean, despite all of the challenges, despite the dips as you describe them, you're still doing this. I mean, it's been a lot of years. Mm-hmm. It has been a lot of years. I don't want to date you. Don't do it. But what, you must love it. So what do you love about this job? What's so great about content? Okay, I'm going to get a little spiritual. Do it. Okay. One of my biggest goals is to open minds to possibility, opportunity, positivity, light, so that we continue to expand our diversity in our culture and... Um, and continue to think bigger. And does a single commercial or a single video piece do that? No, no, it doesn't really. But to make that my, that's like my mission, is to continue to expand. And so I have seen, once I started thinking about, okay, what's the biggest platform? Oh, it's advertising. Oh, it's content. Oh, it's product. To get messages out to the masses, then I realized that I had a huge opportunity and responsibility with the kinds of information that I was putting out there and it also made me feel really good about the work I'm doing so it's almost like a calling like one I don't know how to do really much of anything else and two it's has so much potential to do spell casting quite honestly and to even just like open up a point of view and open up the world just a little bit more right it's it's your way of making it a better place. Mm-hmm. I love that. Are there, you read all the time, you're at the library all the time. Are there any resources out there, be they books, be they podcasts, blogs, that you think are either specifically in the world of, of learning about content and storytelling essential or just, you know, for opening up the heart and expanding the worldview, just things that you think would be great to check out? Who do you read? I mean, I read everything, though. I really do. I read anything and everything. So I've never been a favorite, most, best kind of person. I'm like a give-me-everything-all-the-time person. Right. So it's like, I think, I guess I think the key is diversity. So whatever it is, just don't do that all the time and meditate. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, so you you would actually advocate for the anti-reading list, which is just like, don't get too caught up on one pundit, you know what? one voice. I think, I think for sure, though, you've got to read some science fiction. Science fiction. Yeah, for sure. Because that is like ultimate imagination and 
has a complete set when it's good it has a complete set of logic like it's all of its all of its logistics are in place and you're 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 captivated and so yeah like to be able to think if you think about your own world your own product the way that a science fiction writer treats their story like you're gonna be pretty golden any favorite science fiction octavia butler is pretty rad okay all right cool I'm, uh, you're putting me on the spot because people who know me well know that I consistently reject science fiction <gasps> period pieces. Like if I basically <laughs> speaking of stories, I want all of my stories to be like two people sitting at a coffee table talking to each other about regular stuff for 90 minutes. So you want a story about us right now yeah like if there was a camera and then we <laughs> no. could just watch this later oh i would God. be captivated now my business partner is a big star trek fan like keeps a book of star trek quotes on the desk thinks that every business circumstance life circumstance can be linked back to an episode of star trek and i'm like sorry i fell asleep when you said star trek what was that so okay octavio butler mm-hmm. fine um, what about a side of the mug quote? Something that when you move on as a celestial being to the next lifetime, those of us who are still here on the earth <laughs> can remember Liz Armstrong and her words. Any anything? Rip it open. What does that mean? Like just plunge in and get to the heart of it. Tear it open and get in there. I can't think of a better way to end. Thank you, Liz Armstrong, so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your perspective. How how do we reach you, by the way? Do you have a website or Twitter? Something that uh, all the people who want a feminist point of view for their brand storytelling, where they can go to find you? My website is liz-armstrong.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. We'll Thank throw you. that in the show notes. Thank you, everybody. You're listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great resources for anybody looking to learn more about product management or starting a technology business. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. Join me here. We've got a new conversation every Tuesday. We'll see you next time.